0: Now would you please turn with me to your study outlines. And uh, as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. And we are finishing up our fall series entitled Momentum Through the Finish Line. It has primarily been a study of 2 Chronicles and the kings in 2 Chronicles that started well but did not finish well. But we've had a couple that are outside of 2 Chronicles. One is King Saul today from 1 Samuel. And then also at the hangar in Montana a few weeks ago, Kimberly and I preached live up there at the hangar, and you can go online and catch that message on David that completes this particular series. But then next Sunday, I will start. I will start a new series next Sunday that pivots towards Christmas, and I'm very excited about that. And we're going to have a wonderful time as we go into that new series uh, for uh, the month of December. Saul had a strong start. Number one, he was humble. It says in chapter nine, verse twenty-one. Saul answered after Samuel told him he was going to be the first king of Israel. But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Now, some Bible teachers like Jay Vernon McGee and others believe this is a false humility. You know how sometimes if, if we're truly proud, we kind of say, oh, no, you know, don't say that. Don't say that. Say more. Say more. Don't say that. So it's kind of a false humility going on. But I take it at face value. I believe at this point in his life, he was humble. He was dependent upon God. He was overwhelmed that God would call him uh, to do such a thing. Number two, he was filled with the Spirit of God. It says in chapter 10, verse 9, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Sauls was kind of a man's man, kind of a he-man, kind of a macho kind of guy. And I think they're amazed, but they're also mocking him a little bit. And you got to be willing to swallow your pride. Say, you know what, I, I want to follow after Jesus. I'm willing to be, you know, maybe people at school call you, is, is Joe or Joanne now a Jesus freak? Or they call you pastor at work or something like that, Guillermo or Julio or Joanna. You know, are they now a Jesus freak? Are they now, you know, what are they, a pastor or something like that? What, what's going on there? And so he had to swallow his pride. Is Saul, macho Saul, He, man, Saul, is he also among the prophets? Well, yes, he was because God had changed his heart. You know, we often wonder, why is it God ordained that you get immersed in water? As a sign of following after Christ. What's that all about? There are a thousand ways he could have chosen for us to go public in our faith with Christ. And and by the way, by public, we will do baptisms in front of everybody at the end of 1111, but then we close the door. And if you would like to do it in a more private setting with one or two witnesses, the important thing is, is that there are some witnesses. Uh, In the Bible, some of those famous baptisms like Paul and the Ethiopian eunuch had one, two, maybe three people witnessing it. It doesn't have to be in, in front of hundreds of people, but it does need to be in front of somebody. We need to go public in front of other people. But why get dunked in water? Well, I think there's something about when you're soaked in water in front of even a couple of people. It's very humbling. You're very vulnerable. I mean, you think I look bald now. You should see me soaking wet. I mean, I I look even balder. I know that seems like, how is that possible? There's no hair to get wet. But I mean, I I look even balder when I'm wet. And there's something, you women with your hair and stuff like that. But there's something about coming to him like a child. Without pretense. And say, Jesus, I love you so much. I'm willing to look the fool. I'm willing to have people say, is Saul also among the prophets. And so if that's something that you want to do, at the end of the 11, 11 we close the doors, and then I continue to baptize uh, more privately after uh, that is over. Number three, he mobilized the people against injustice. Ammonites came, surrounded the Israelite town of Jabesh Gilead, and they did their surrender terms to them. They said, if you surrender to us, we're going to gouge out the right eye of everybody in the city. Man, woman, boy, girl. They said, well, we don't have an army to defend us, but give us a few days. We'll see if we can get help. If help comes, we'll, we'll fight you on this. If not, we'll surrender and you can gouge out our, our right eye. Now, why would they do such a thing? Well, uh, for number one, to disgrace them, to disgrace the God of Israel, to disgrace the nation of Israel. But secondly, there was a strategic reason to it, is that a whole generation of people from that town would not be good shooting archery because you need both eyes for spatial conception. You do better with both eyes spatially. That's why in some cultures, when they conquered somebody, they cut off the right thumbs and the right big toe of every man in the town. Why? Because you couldn't hold a sword then. You couldn't balance yourself in sword uh, warfare. And so they would do that so that a whole generation would be subjugated uh, to them. So they send out the word and Saul hears about it. Verse 6 when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. You know, Sometimes we think that there, it's always wrong to be angry, that, that anger is a sinful emotion. It's not. There are righteous times to be angry. Here it says, the Spirit of God came over him and what was the result? He became angry. Sometimes we, when we see rampant immorality, or God's law violated flagrantly, we should be angry. When we see injustice, when we see kids that are starving to death, when we see poverty, when we see human trafficking, we should burn with anger. And so when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. Skipping down to verse 9. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. And then number four, Saul was merciful to his critics and gave God the credit for his victory. This is right after the victory over the Ammonites. He frees the city of Jabesh-Gilead. Verse 12, the people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. Who is it that resisted Saul being our king? Because Saul was the big hero now. And yet there were some men that were critical of it before they had made him king. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today. He was merciful to his critics. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. And he gives God the credit for his victory. So this is a very good start. Now, most of the kings that we've been studying, the bad finish was towards the end of their life. But with Saul, unfortunately, he only has a few years, a few months of a strong start. And then things begin to go badly uh, very quickly in his race with God. Uh, number one, he did not wait for God's timing. And what I want to do here with the remainder of our time is spend most of our time on points one and point three, because these are two that are very unique to Saul and that Saul's life kind of does a, a great job of illustrating. And then point two, we're going to have you just study that for your daily quiet time and your daily Bible reading. And if we have time left at the end, I'll, I'll deal briefly with number four. But I want to spend most of the time with number one and number three. Number one, he did not wait for God's timing. This is such an important lesson in the Christian life, and Saul is like a, a perfect negative example of this. you got to wait to do the right thing the right way and according to the right timing. It's not enough to just do the right thing, even in the right way. you got to wait for the right time. We've got to wait for God's timing for something, and this is hard How many of you ever struggle waiting for God in your life? Waiting for God to act, waiting to have the thing that you want. And many of these are good things in our life. They're they're good things. It's just not time yet. An easy example of this is, you know how we tend to, once we get going in life, we want to have our parents' lifestyle right off the bat. We want to drive the type of car, good a cars as our parents had. We want to live in as good a house as they lived in. We have, want to have the, the stereo, the stuff that they had. We want what our parents had right away. We forget the fact that they've accumulated this over years and even decades of life. We want it right away. And that might be a good thing to want those things, but it may not be the right timing. And so in order to, to skip the waiting period, we use our credit cards or we buy a house we can't afford or a car we can't afford and it gets us into debt and then we get in trouble and we never get those good things because we weren't able to wait the timetable we've got uh, interest rates in our face, the wind at our face our whole lives rather than compounding interest at our back our whole lives uh, like uh, Financial Peace University talks about and, and uh, things that are that are taught in that course that we share here uh, from Dave Ramsey in our in our classes. And so we need to wait for those things, save for those things rather than going in debt to get them. Another example that's kind of painful is the whole waiting for God for the right person to marry. Now, many people are called to singleness. And if you are called to be single, God will bless you in that. That's his first choice for you. And I tell you, way better, as I've seen it through the years as a pastor, way better to be single adult in the center of God's will than to be out of God's will married to the wrong person. You will be way happier single then you will be running ahead of God in your choice in marriage. And I'd ask for amens, but I don't want you to do that out loud, okay? might get you in trouble. But, you know, way and And that is not God's second choice. I mean, the founder of our faith, Jesus, was a single adult. The great spreader of our faith, the apostle Paul, was a single adult. That, that is, that's God's ideal for you. But let's say that you do feel that God has called you to be married. And it's so hard to wait for that person. And it breaks my heart when I have young adults that I meet with or middle-aged adults or older adults that really want to be married and that person just hasn't come along. You wait for God's right person. Wait for it. God will bless you for that. And and don't run ahead of God and and grab the first uh, uh, available person that shows an interest or that's, that's reasonably okay. You wait for God's timing on that thing. I talked to a marriage counselor, had lunch with a marriage counselor this past week, and he's older, and so he's counseled literally thousands of, of married couples. And, and I, I said, have you ever met one that wished they had gotten married sooner rather than later? Now, that sample I had a... Uh, Talithia Williams, she's like a PhD statistics guru at Claremont Colleges, and she was sitting on the front row at eight thirty. And she says, "Well, your your pool is uh, spoiled, there, Glenn, because these are all couples, you know, getting getting help from him." But I would say, as a pastor, because they were saying they're they're the first couple I've ever met that wish they got married sooner rather than later. But I'm just telling you, as a pastor, uh, I the world is filled with people that wish they had waited on that. If it's, if it's God's thing, it'll be there if you wait. Don't, don't run ahead of God. And yet the world is filled with those that just ran ahead of God and, and, and it got them in trouble like it did Saul. Sex is a good example. You know, if you're called to be married, God wants you to enjoy that within marriage. And yet if you run ahead of God, it just opens the door for all kinds of heartache, Now, you can see this in Saul's life. And actually, I really empathize with him here. I I understand the struggle he's going through. Saul remained at Gilgal. This is a later battle when he's fighting against the Philistines. And all the troops with him were quaking with fear. You know, he's got the army assembled. He needs to strike. The more they just sit there and look at it, the more afraid they get of that thing. And yet Samuel had told him, wait until I get there to offer sacrifices and to pray God's blessing before we go into battle. He told him to wait. And yet it's just getting, you know, they're just losing their heart the more they just kind of stare at the enemy and don't attack the enemy. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. He was losing guys because as time went on, he's losing his army. And I, you, can, you can almost feel the pressure of Saul as the army commander here. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Did the wrong thing, the wrong way. He's not supposed to offer that. He is king. The prophet is supposed to do that, Samuel. And he does it ahead of time, the wrong timing. Just as he finished making the offering, who shows up? Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel, Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time. <laughs> this characteristic of Saul, he's always blaming somebody else. Not like David. The thing you love about David, even though he made some big mistakes, David always owned up to it immediately. I'm the guy. I'm the guy. I'm the one that's done wrong. Didn't blame his parents, didn't blame society, didn't blame Bathsheba. He's like, I'm the guy. And in contrast to that, Saul's always pointing the finger at somebody else. You did not come at the set time. And that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the Lord's favor. you love that. False spirituality. I needed God's blessing. Well, then wait for God's timing if you want God's blessing. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Next page of your study outline. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. And with all the love in my heart as your pastor, let me just say to you, right thing, right way, right timing. Don't do a foolish thing and run ahead of God. God blesses those who wait for him. Wait for God's best. Don't run ahead of God. He says, you have done a foolish thing, You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And in your Bible reading this afternoon or or, or, or this week, uh, look in that second one where he has this problem with obeying God's command. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. You'll get what you want short term, but you won't get blessing long term. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. You tell me, who was that? Who was that? was David. And David, for all of his flaws, he was willing to wait for God's time. Remember, he knew God wanted him to be king. He'd been anointed king, and yet he won't jump ahead in line. He'll wait for God. He had numerous opportunities to kill Saul and take the kingship, but he refused to run ahead of God. And so the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart who is willing to wait for my timing and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, let me ask, what is it for you? What is it in your life? What, what is the thing where you're tempted to run ahead of God? What is that thing? And Lord, we just pray that you'll help us as a church family to wait for your timing. Now skipping to number three. Saul was obsessed with his jealousy of David. You know, jealousy is such, such a dangerous thing in the Christian life. Uh, I was reading just before I went to bed last night. I was uh, having my quiet time and reading some in, in, in Proverbs. And it says Je- jealousy is the most dangerous thing. More dangerous than anger. More jealous, dangerous than pride. I mean, Saul and, uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes says it's the universal motive. Jealousy is a tool of Satan. He loves to rob our joy in life through jealousy. And Saul was obsessed with his jealousy of David. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands And David, his tens of thousands. Now, according to Hebrew poetry, this is not meant to offend. It's simply meant to say, David and Saul have slain thousands upon thousands. And so he should not have taken offense. But even if that is what they meant, he should have rejoiced in that. He should have said, that's fantastic. David is going to carry it to the next generation. David was loyal to Saul. He just wanted to enhance his kingdom. There was no need for him to be defensive. In our, as as parents, don't you, I I love it when my children and all my children have just exceeded any Kimberly thing, in many areas, anything Kimberly and I have done. And we rejoice in that. At work, shouldn't we rejoice in that? At church, shouldn't we rejoice when the next generation carries it forward in an even greater way than we have done? Done even greater things from God. And so even if it had been meant to be offensive, and it was not, Instead, he should have rejoiced in this and not be obsessed by jealousy and defensive about it. Saul, however, was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. In your translation, it may say a jealous eye on him, and it brought tragedy To the end of his life. I had a humorous example of this. Uh, I had a Saul moment uh, this past week. Just had a Saul moment. Uh, I've told you many times before how, whenever we go back to my home in Virginia, back to where I grew up in in Southern Virginia, uh, we do three things. We visit three places. First of all, we visit the family farm, the old family homestead. Uh, Number two, uh, we visit my parents' graves. And then number three, we do this thing that my wife Kimberly calls a pathetic middle-aged man exercise. (laughs) Uh, She has a very bad attitude towards this particular thing. We drive over to my old high school, and because Kimberly has a bad attitude, she stays in the car and does not participate. And I take the kids into my old high school to see if my old record in the miles still stands. And uh, it has stood for the last 40 years, and I walk them over to where the records are kept there. And I say something along these lines, children, for years, yea, verily, decades, younger men have come and they have gone, and they have assaulted this record time and time again, but each time has ended in bitter disappointment and defeat. Behold the record which still stands. And then we go back out and join their mother in the car uh, later on. And so we've been doing this for for 40 years. This past week, I get a letter postmarked from Prince George, Virginia. (laughs) Reverend Gunderson, do you remember an old math teacher? Once upon a time, I taught a fast young man who wanted to go into the ministry. I'm teaching a young man now who is after your record. It's still there. I knew that. He is only a half second from breaking it. He is a nice Christian young man. Includes an article where this guy's an on-fire Christian. Just a newspaper article all about how he prays to Jesus and he's walking with God and on fire for God and praying all the time. If you think it would be good to contact him, I'll connect you. Best wishes, Buddy Darby. I wish I could say that my initial reaction was, isn't that wonderful? But it was not. My initial reaction is, this punk is going to take my record. Sure, I'll write him with all kinds of bad advice. Dear Alex, his name is Alex Smith. Uh, Dear Alex, I found that eating five burritos and five cans of Coca-Cola right before the race will give you explosive energy. <laughs> Dear Alex, I found it was best not to train at all just to save it for racing. Dear Alex, I found it was best to run as 20 miles as hard as you could the, m- the morning before your race. I, no, I will be good and I will write him nice things uh, through gritted teeth. I will, no, no, I will (laughs) celebrate his accomplishment. He sounds like a wonderful young man. But now on a more serious note, there's a tragic example from history. Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo. Leonardo da Vinci, one of the most gifted men of all time. Very, very gifted. Do you know he spent the last third of his life in bitterness, critical spirit, cranky old man? His last third. Do you know why? because of a gifted younger man by the name of Michelangelo that was coming along. And rather than embrace him, rather than celebrate his accomplishments, rather than mentor him, he resented him like Saul resented David. And you know the irony of all this? I saw a, rec- a list a while back that said the 100 most influential men of all, men and women of all human history. Out of 12 billion people that have ever lived, Leonardo da Vinci is number 50 on the list. That's the nature of jealousy. You would think that being in the top 50 out of 12 billion, you wouldn't have self-esteem problems. You wouldn't have jealousy problems. But you know, UCLA has done research on this, and they have found your happiness is not determined by what you have, but by what you have relative to what the people around you have. That's all, what it's all about. And you know what the other ironic thing is? Michelangelo is number 55 on the list. Leonardo da Vinci on number 50. Michelangelo over number 55. So Michelangelo finished behind Leonardo da Vinci. But he died a bitter old man because of jealousy. It is such, such a dangerous, dangerous thing. There's something else going on here. Not just jealousy... But the transfer of leadership from the, younger genera- from the older generation to the younger generation. See, Saul was struggling with transferring leadership to the next generation, which was David. That was part of it as well. This seems a little bit random, but I'm going to camp on the last point of this. See the little graphic I put in there from my friend Tom Mercer, entitled The Seasons of Parenting. I don't know where Tom got it from, but I, I took it from Tom. And the seasons of parenting, this is interesting. Number one is celebrity and pregnancy. The self-absorption of impending parenthood. Number two is the sponge phase, where your child is birthed to age one, surrendering your former identity to the essentials of caring for a baby. Number three was the family manager stage, where your child is ages one to five, organizing and juggling the business of life with toddlers and preschoolers. Number four is the travel agent stage, where your children are ages six to 12, stepping up your role of activities manager as your children go through school. I love number five is the volcanologist stage where your children are ages 13 to 17, little volcanoes around the house, predicting, preparing, and prevailing during those explosive teen years. Number six is the remodeler stage, ages 18 to 24, reevaluating life as a parent of new adults. Number seven is the reflector stage where your children are 25 to 49, reliving your life with your grandchildren. And then number eight is the rebounder stage, where your children are 50 and older. If you have a pencil or pen, underline these. Accepting, underlining, and embracing, underline it, the parent-child role reversal. Accepting and embracing the parent-child role reversal. You see, we're all in the process, those of us in our 50s, 60s, and 70s, Of turning things over to those that are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And that can be hard. Are we doing it gracefully, graciously, humbly? Loving mentors of the next generation. Handing off the baton in graceful fashion in the relay lane. uh, the, The time allotted to do that. Or are we critical? Are we ornery? Are we resentful? Are we bitter? Are we critical as we do this? this? This handoff happens as parents within the family. It happens at work. It happens here in the church. Here in the church, those of us in our 50s, 60s, and 70s are in the process of handing it things over to the younger generation of those in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And, and they have different ideas than we do on certain things. They have different strategies for reaching their world for Christ than we do. They have different approaches for how it needs to be done. And do we resent it or do we accept and embrace our mentoring role as we hand the baton off to the next generation? My model in this was my dad. My dad was founder of a lumber company in Virginia and its president. He was president and founder of this lumber company, And you read all the time where founders have the hardest time of all handing things over. They're the toughest thing of all of this transition phase going on, those that have founded something, but not with my dad. He spent his 50s searching southern Virginia for the sharpest young businessmen he could find and then recruiting them to his lumber company. He spent his 60s lovingly mentoring these young men and turning the keys over to them. And then he spent his 70s hunting, fishing, serving God, and collecting dividend checks (laughs) from what these guys were doing as they grew the company beyond what he was able to do. And, And that's what we're called to do, whether it's in the home, at work, or at church. And then number four, let me just tag this on just as a little closing warning. At the end of his life, Saul involved himself in the occult. You say, well, Glenn, that's not, you know, there aren't too many Satan worshipers here this morning probably. Oh, but there there are Satan dabblers within the church, and we need to be so careful. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. And you can read all the remaining verses there from Moses and Deuteronomy and and from the book of Isaiah. But let me just give you some stats on this. Three out of every four teenagers have reportedly experimented with witchcraft or psychic-related activities. The most popular of these activities include, and these are seemingly innocent things, using a Ouija board, reading books about witchcraft or Wicca, playing games involving sorcery or witchcraft, having a professional do a palm reading, or having their fortune told. How many television shows and movies now have to do with the occult? Watch out for those things. How about reading your horoscope? What could be more innocent than that? Watch out for that. Watch out for that no dabbling in these things at all. Uh, Moses wrote, when you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead, anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord because of these same detestable practices. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we finish up this series on principles of finishing well, I thank you for the wonderful group of spiritual runners running their race that are in front of me right now. But Lord we want to be a church, not just a people that start well. Oh, Lord, we want to be a church that finishes well. We want to be a church that maintains our momentum through the finish line. And we want to be individual followers of Jesus who don't just start well, but finish well. Help us to finish well. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said.